Let's pray for God's blessing on our time and his word, please. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this time to be together, to open up the words of eternal life. And we thank you for all that we have been able to see and learn from the gospel of Luke. And we thank you for breathing forth this glorious part of your holy word to us. We pray you would help us to understand Luke 24, 1 through 12, to receive his truth with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn to Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. We are in the last chapter of Luke. Finally. It's only taken three and a half years. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. But he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Nearly everything in this narrative that we just read about the response of Jesus' disciples to these miraculous events, nearly everything in it demonstrates a lack of faith on their part. It is this battle with doubt that shows us how the biblical narrative of these historical events, it just breathes real history. This is exactly the way it would have happened. What are Jesus' disciples really like? They're a lot like us. They're very ordinary people. The narrative, it would seem unbelievable if the disciples of Christ had been camping out outside the tomb, maybe hanging out with the Roman guards, playing cards with them or something like that, waiting for him to rise from the dead. I wonder, you know, what that would have been like if they'd been out there. I wonder what time he's going to raise on on the third day since we all heard him say that over and over again. We know what's going to happen. That would sound unbelievable to us. But what were these women going to the tomb to do? Why, Why did they go to the tomb? They were there to try to hold back the smell and the onset of decay of a dead body. You don't anoint the living with perfumes and spices that you prepared all day. They expected Jesus to still be dead when they got to the tomb. They weren't going there to meet the risen Lord. Jesus' male disciples, 
They were not even with the women. The men had fled. They were hiding somewhere. It is remarkable that these are the very people that watched all the miracles and saw him walk on water and saw him raise the dead. And they heard him say many times, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Hearing this so many times from Jesus, he kept telling them that, but when they heard it, they were always discouraged by it. They were always saddened by it because none of them believed it. In one instance, Peter rebuked Jesus. Remember that? And when he did that, he told Jesus, this will never happen to you. You'll never be betrayed. You'll never be beaten and crucified. Remember Jesus' answer to him? Get behind me, Satan. There are recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and all the Gospels, there are nine statements. Nine times Jesus told them this was going to happen. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests. I mean, all the details. He tells them all that stuff is going to happen, but they never believed him. And you know what? I don't think any of us would have either. Contained in this passage before us is what scripture calls the first fruits of the age to come. The first fruits of the age to come. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have what theologians call the, the inbreaking of the age to come. Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, and at the end of all things, we'll all follow him and be raised from the dead ourselves and go to heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul said, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The great harvest of the resurrection, Jesus is the first fruit to go. And Paul says, But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. When he comes back, everyone else comes back to life from the dead. The resurrection of our dead bodies and their full restoration is one of the great expectations that God has promised to his children. While there will be a general resurrection of all mankind, believers and unbelievers alike, only those who knew Christ will be the occupants of the glorious new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, we're told. Unbelievers, they'll be raised up too. They'll come back to life too, just like us. But they will occupy, occupy a place of eternal death in the lake of fire and brimstone. The descriptions of hell are horrific in God's word. But Jesus makes this wonderful promise in John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. They will come back to life. I will bring them out of the tomb just like Lazarus, except when Lazarus came out, he was still able to die. He was like we are now except healthy. But when we come out of the grave on the last day, our bodies will be glorified and every last remain of sin will be gone for good. When Jesus said, I will raise him up at the last day, that's talking about our being acquitted, our being pronounced righteous before God and being given eternal life and heavenly glory for all eternity. The resurrection body of the Lord Jesus is the prototype of the new bodies that we will receive when Christ returns. It's a joyous hope that we've been given. Even if we struggle with doubts about it, just remember, one of, the, one of the most encouraging passages in the New Testament, to me personally, is after Jesus rose from the dead, after he ate in front of his disciples, after he said, guys, I'm not a ghost, see? Touch me, look at me, see? I'm real. 
It says in Matthew 28, 17, right before Jesus ascended back to heaven, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You think, he's standing right there. What, what are you doubting? Well, they're just like us, aren't they? They have the same doubts and fears and yeah, I know scripture says this and I, I believe Lord, but help my unbelief. I believe that Jesus is going to do it, that his death is enough for me. I believe, but help my unbelief. Part of me still doesn't believe. It's such an encouraging thing to realize that the certainty of what God has promised, that's what the main thing I've gained from studying Luke, the certainty of what God has promised and of what he has accomplished, it doesn't depend on the strength of our faith for its certainty. Our level of assurance or certainty, it doesn't affect the reality of anything that God has sworn to do. Even the strongest faith is nearly always mixed with doubt. And what Jesus told his disciples he was going to do, die and rise again, it did happen. It happened in history. Whether they believed it or not, it was absolutely certain because of the one who said it would happen. And here again, I want to encourage you who may be in a time of struggle, with uncertainty, with doubt, with hard providences, things going on, struggling with certainty, struggling with doubt. Does God really love me? Am I really saved? If you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation and you know the grief of personal repentance for your sins, then Jesus' death is your death. His righteousness is your righteousness. And you are forever safely hidden in him. Whether your confidence in that is strong or weak, it's not our faith, it's not our belief that saves us. It's Jesus Christ who saves us through faith, through belief. There's no virtue in faith. There's no virtue or saving power in belief of the gospel. It's Christ who does all the saving. To believe in the gospel and to believe in Jesus means that you rely on his work. You rely on his death, burial, and resurrection and his righteousness to get you into heaven when you die. That's where our entire hope rests, is on him. The great Martin Luther. Luther, I think, understood this truth probably better than anyone ever has since the Apostle Paul. He described belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus, that blessed confidence that we have in his work. He described it as a container that holds 100 gold coins. And that container can be a paper sack or it could be a steel safe. The container is not what matters. Only what's in the container matters. The container might be weak like a paper sack or it might be strong like a steel safe, but both still have 100 gold coins in them. So whether we have strong faith or weak faith in Jesus is not the point. It's who our faith is in. He does all the saving. Faith simply lays hold of him. Sometimes that faith is stronger, sometimes it's weaker. It doesn't matter because the object of our faith is always infinitely strong. Even a weak and struggling faith embraces a powerful, all-sufficient Savior. It's what Jesus did. The magnificent power of what he did to bring forgiveness and to weave together that perfect robe of righteousness that clothes us. That's what matters. That's where the saving power is. As the great preacher Al Martin, I'm not going to try to imitate his voice, said, Saving faith is the desperate thrust of a helpless soul upon the arms of an almighty Savior. That's what faith is. It looks to the Savior. Jesus entered into that broken covenant of works, that broken covenant that Adam broke for all of us. Jesus enters into it, and he achieves its righteous requirement. He takes its penalty upon himself. The death penalty that Adam incurred is borne by Christ. He dies at the cross. 
And the righteous requirement of that covenant, that perfect obedience is achieved by Christ. It's imputed into our legal account before God. And we just rest upon him. We receive and rest upon him. We turn, as the book of Hebrews says, we turn from dead works to serve the living and true God through Christ our Savior. Once we're saved, once we're adopted into God's family, then we show our gratitude to the Lord. We show our gratitude to him by doing good works. Always remember, if, if grace is the essence of salvation, if we're saved by grace alone, then the sole motivation to do, to do good works is thankfulness, is gratitude. You know, so many Christians today, because the gospel is not clean in their thinking, it's not real clear in their thinking, Jesus does all the saving, very often they're motivated by fear. I better, get, I better be doing more, I better be doing this. And the irony is you can only really get real holiness when it's motivated by gratitude, when it's motivated by thanksgiving. That's the heart and soul of everything. Let's look at verse 1. Let's walk through this. There's a lot here in these 12 verses. Look at verse 1 of Luke 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. When people that we love die, there's still an attachment in us to them. And we, we often know their final resting place and we'll visit that final resting place. These women were coming to anoint Jesus' head and anoint his face, maybe his wounded hands and his feet. That's what they were wanting to go do. And they were going to put spices on his body to mask the smell of decay. That's what, that was the purpose of the perfume, was to make it not smell so bad. Death smells terrible. And people also decorate the burial places of people that they love. They do that out of respect for those people and what they meant to them. This is why when you drive past cemeteries, you'll see flowers, fresh flowers on tombstones. You'll see wreaths. You'll see other tokens that people leave behind on those burial places of their loved ones. Why do we do that? Why do, why do people do that? What's part of the grieving process? And it's part of the way we show our affection for their memory. It's part of letting go, too. What's wonderful for believers is that it's never a final goodbye. It's only goodbye for a while. We don't grieve like the world. Yes, we grieve. We feel the pain of loss. We don't grieve like the world. We have a blessed expectation and a certain knowledge that we will be with our departed brothers and sisters when we die, never to be parted again from them. We see here in verse 1, their great love for Jesus, their great devotion to him. Jesus' disciples, they're nowhere to be found as yet. They've all run off. And these women had prepared spices. They spent the, the day preparing spices for this trip. It was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. Hey, y'all want to go visit the tomb? They've been preparing spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. They spent their time doing this act of honor and kindness for their Lord. And I want you to consider, we know from the other Gospels and also from here, one of the ladies that went was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, who was she? According to Luke 8, verse 2, Jesus had cast seven demons out of her, and she was a prostitute. Isn't that amazing? A formerly demon-possessed prostitute is one of the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. But you know, very often people who are forgiven a lot will love a lot. People who recognize the life they were delivered from very often, if that life was characterized by very serious sin and very dark times, uh, their appreciation for the deliverance of Jesus and their appreciation for his forgiveness is that much greater. Remember the repentant prostitute that entered, had the guts to go into that, to Simon the Pharisee's house and she weeps on Jesus' feet? And Jesus asked Simon, 
If a man has two servants and one owes him 50 and one owes him 500 and he cancels both debts, which one's going to love him more? And Simon, well, I suppose the one that he forgave more. Of course. Why was that woman so in love with Jesus? Why, did she, why was she so thankful to Jesus? Because she'd been forgiven so much. Mary Magdalene had a deep, deep love for Jesus. This former, former prostitute who was possessed by seven demons, she'd been delivered from that life, delivered from immorality, delivered from bondage. And so she's there. She's there. In verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Matthew's account has a lot more information because these women, some of them were eyewitnesses of this. this. Listen to Matthew 28's version of this. Now after the Sabbath, at the first day of the week, began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. So they, they get to the tomb and suddenly there's a huge earthquake. An angel of the Lord descends from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So this Roman custodian, this group of soldiers, they watch an angel come down, roll away the stone and sit on it. And his countenance is like lightning and they are literally shaken. And it says they become like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. You know, the fact that the different gospel writers, they emphasize different details about what happened here on resurrection morning. That should not trouble us at all. The whole point of having four Gospels is so that the story can be told from four different angles with four different audiences and four different areas of emphasis. If if they were all identical, if all the Gospels were identical, there'd only be one Gospel in the New Testament. God wouldn't have given us four. And the narratives all complement one another. They give us different information about what happened. They bring out those things. They're not contradictory. An angel rolls away the stone after a great earthquake and the roman guards of course they're eyewitnesses of all this they feel the earthquake they see the angel roll away the stone and you know these guards what happened to them later they were paid to lie they were paid to lie matthew 28 11 now while they were going behold some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened you know what's amazing is the chief priests believe them They come and say, an angel came down, there was a huge earthquake, and an angel rolled the stone away. And the the chief priests don't go, no, no, that didn't happen. They believe him. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave them a large sum of money, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. These eyewitnesses of miracles, they were paid to lie. The Roman guards were paid to lie. And that's what they went and did. They lied. They took money and they said what they knew was not true about what happened. These soldiers watched an angel roll away the stone after being so terrified that they shook for fear and became like dead men. I just want to remind us all of something. Rejection of God, rejection of the gospel, a refusal to repent, 
it's always a moral problem, never an intellectual one. If you know people, yeah, they're like a real intellectual. They like to read philosophers and atheists. has nothing to do with philosophers. has nothing to do with anything of the kind. People refuse to believe in God. They refuse to repent because they're rebellious against God. People refuse to cry out to God for mercy because they love sin and they don't want to part with sin and they serve and love sin. It's their master. Remember Romans 1, 18? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may, may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. These Roman guards, they were eyewitnesses not just of the wonders of creation every day. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. They were eyewitnesses of a descent of an angel of the Lord and the supernatural removal of a giant stone from the mouth of Christ's tomb. And their hearts remained as hard as the stone that the angels removed from the tomb. These women who came with Jesus out of Galilee, they knew where the tomb was and they knew where Jesus had been laid. They prepared spices and perfumes. And then on Sunday morning, they went to the tomb and they found the stone rolled away. Look at verses three and four. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse four. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Okay, so stop there. The women still as yet do not understand that Jesus has risen from the dead. That term perplexed, that Greek term means to be at a loss for an explanation. Not one person that saw the empty tomb thought, oh yeah, he told us he was going to rise again from the dead. None of them do that. They're just perplexed. What happened? Where is he? They are really confused about the fact he's not in there. It's kind of like the attitude, he was right here when we left him. Where else could he be? Now, why do I emphasize this? Why am I emphasizing this to you? As I said earlier, the gospel narratives record nine occasions where Jesus told them this was going to happen. He told his followers he was going to be betrayed, and he was. He told them he was going to be crucified, and he was. He told them, and I'm going to die, which he did. And I'm going to be buried, which he was. And then I'm going to rise from the dead, which he did. And not one person to whom Jesus said those things thought the tomb was empty because he was alive. Not one of them. They all thought somebody moved him. Remember what the, the women say? Where is he? They've taken him out of the tomb and laid him somewhere. We don't know where he is. They don't think for a second that he might be alive. They're all perplexed. They're all at a loss, it says in verse 4. Mary Magdalene in John 20 verse 1 seems to be the very first one that got there. She was the first one to the tomb and it's empty. And she doesn't say, he's risen just as he said. She says in John 20 verse 2, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. In other words, obviously he's still dead. They just took him out of here. Notice the last phrase of verse four. Two men stood by them in shining garments. And we know from the gospels, these are angels in human form. What these angels tell them is astounding. They clear up their perplexity with one of the greatest and most memorable questions ever asked to any human beings in the history of the world. Verse five, and as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? And before the angels ask their question, the women are afraid and they fall on their faces. They know that these are angels. They're shining with the glory of God. But meditate on that question. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? They ask those women. The question is not just informing them he's alive. It's also a mild rebuke. They're also rebuking the women. It's as if the angels are telling them, this tomb is the last place you should be looking for him. He's not here. He told you he was going to come back to life. How many times did he tell you that? Nine different times? Why are you looking here for him? Why are you looking among the dead for him? A graveyard, a cemetery is the last place you should be. Look at verse 7. Or verse 6, excuse me. Verse 6 through 8. He is not here, but he's risen, they said. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Here we are. We're at the third day. They should have known. He's alive now. The angels remind the women of Jesus' words, and then they remember. They remember. Jesus told them this would happen. Now they know. Now they remember. And they're confronted with a great absurdity. Why are they looking for their resurrected Lord in a tomb? If you're a true believer, I want to make a point of application here. If you're a true believer, doubting your own salvation is just as inappropriate as these ladies doubting that he was alive. One of the greatest challenges that faces a minister, a pastor, minister of the Gospels, you want people who think they're Christians but aren't. You want them to be troubled and you, you want them to have no assurance. But you want true believers, people that do know the Lord, you want them to have the greatest sense of assurance that they could possibly have. This is what Jesus came to give his people, dear congregation. If you're a true believer, and, and I limit these comments only to those who are true believers, those whose personal trust for entering heaven is in Christ and nothing else, nothing that they've done, only in Jesus' personal righteousness. If you see your spiritual poverty and you, you mourn over your sin and over the condition of the world around you, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you know that in the end all you have is Christ, then you need to know it's God's will. It is his will for you to sleep peacefully at night. It's his will for you to have joy in the midst of your trials. It's his will for you to be anxious for nothing, to not worry about a thing. Listen to some of the promises that Jesus gave his disciples. And we know that when Jesus said these things to them, it didn't really help them, but we know these words would have helped them later once they understood and believed after the resurrection. Jesus told them before he was betrayed, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. If you're a Christian, it's God's will that you never be troubled and that you never be afraid of anything. John 14, 1, Jesus told his disciples, this is after he told them, I'm leaving and you guys can't follow me. Where I'm going, you cannot come because he knew he's about to go out and die on the cross. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to ascend back to heaven. And they're all very upset about this. And he tells them in John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. You know, he's been working on that place for 2,000 years. 
If you know the glory of this world, don't you see the glory of God and the creation all around you? He did that in six days. He's been preparing a place for us for 2,000 years. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In his final prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested, John 17, that whole chapter, a gold mine for a Christian. He prayed, Father, I desire, in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Why, why can we know we will go to be with the Lord. As soon as we die, we depart these bodies, our souls depart and go to be with Jesus because he prayed that we would. Father, I desire that they would be with me where I am. Jesus' work was to save his people from their sins. On the last day, when Jesus brings his church before the judgment, Hebrews 2.13 says, here's what he's gonna say to his father. Here am I and all the children that you've given me. Here they are. I didn't lose a single one of them. I saved them all, and I'm presenting them to you now, faultless, blameless, sinlessly perfect because of my righteousness. It's not the will of Christ that those that he came to save would spend their lives in anxiety, that they would spend their time worried about whether or not they're saved. For the true believer, no matter how many tears that God has decreed that we will shed, and the trials that he ordains for us to pass through, nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can. Now, please don't take this as that's God's promise to every human being on earth. No, no, no. It's only for the repentant believers. Only those who rest in Christ. The assurances of God's love in scripture are for the repentant. And they're for those that come to Jesus because they see their sin and they know there's no hope for anything for me except in the forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ. Jesus warned his opponents. He, he told the gospel to so many people in John 5, 40. He said, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Being willing to come to Jesus means we have to stop trying to save ourselves first. You have to stop believing you can be good enough or faithful enough to go to heaven. Jesus did what he did for sinners who know that they're sinners and who rely entirely upon him and what he did, and not at all on themselves or what they do. Back in Luke 24, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Great Reformation Catechism of the Continental Reformed Tradition, asks the question, question 45, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? Listen to this answer. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Death will not have the final say over any of us. Paul said in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Yes, we will all die. We'll all undergo corruption and decay, but Jesus will raise us back to life, never to die again. Look at verses 9 and 10. And return from the tomb. So the women, they see all this, they talk to these angels, and return from the tomb, and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Verse 10. 
Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. The women find the 11 disciples of Christ and they tell them what they saw. They tell them about the angels, tell them about the earthquake, the rolling away of the stone. And notice verse nine says they told it to the 11 and to all the rest. Apparently, all of Christ's followers had just scattered to the winds when Jesus was crucified, and they're they're not all together anymore, and these women had to do a lot of legwork to go find him, to go tell them all. Here's what we just saw, and the results of of this report is very sad. Look at verse 11. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, one translation says, and they did not believe them. The word translated idle, (coughs) idle tales there, means, quote, that which is totally devoid of anything worthwhile. That's how the Greek lexicon defines it. The usage in here, it was like, they might as well have gone and said, we discovered the Smurf village. They didn't believe, they thought, oh, good grief, are you serious? An angel came down and rolled away, and there was an earthquake. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds believable. They thought they were idle tales. You guys are making this stuff up. Think about it. Jesus told these men, I'm going to be betrayed and it happened. I'm going to be crucified and it happened. I'm going to die and be buried and it all happened. It's now the third day. He told them, I'm going to rise again from the dead on the third day. And these women come to them and report, we went to the tomb. There was an earthquake. An angel came down and rolled away the stone. And the Roman guards shook and became like dead men. And then we looked inside the tomb. And the angel said to us, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And then we remembered that Jesus did tell us these things. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Thomas, don't you remember that? He said it was going to happen and it has. And their response is, you're... These are idle tales. These are fairy tales. The ultimate expression of unbelief. We don't believe you. These men have been with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of more astounding miracles than perhaps any group of human beings ever saw. Even the people of Israel and Egypt. Everything Jesus said was going to happen, it happened exactly as he said it would. And his own disciples here, his own disciples think the word of God, the promise of God in Christ The promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to King David, and the very words that Jesus spoke to them, the mighty miracle worker, the one who they saw walking on water, who calmed a storm by talking to it, peace be still. They don't believe him. And they don't believe the women either. These are just idle tales. Idle tales. This ought to demonstrate to us the blind, incorrigible hardness of heart that exists in all of us as sinners. If this doesn't demonstrate the need for a supernatural miracle, for a new birth from on high, and the irresistible, effectual call of God's grace to make the dead alive, I don't know what would. The whole history of God's dealings with men since the fall also demonstrates this. God could snow miracles every day. It's not going to have any effect on anyone. No matter what God does in history, no matter how terrifying the judgment No matter how astounding the miracles, no matter how profound and life-changing his doctrine, no matter how tender his love, no matter how long-suffering his patience, we are blind and bound by the existence of resistance to him in our unbelief and in our foolishness unless he opens our hearts. Think about this. Remember the flood of Noah? God destroyed every life on this planet. 
except eight people in the ark. And just a few generations later, did they all get together? You know, maybe we should try being good this time. No, they all get together. Let's build a name for ourselves. Let's build a giant tower. Yeah, he told us to scatter and subdue the earth and to spread out, but we're going to stay in one place and make a huge city and have a giant tower. Did that flood have any effect on human hearts? Not at all. God assuages the thirst of more than a million people in the desert every day with water from a rock and literally bread out of heaven. And these same people still grumble, complain, and mistrust God. Are we any different? No. God destroys the world's most powerful nation, Egypt, through a stuttering old man with a stick, calling down miracle after miracle upon them. And those same people who saw the plagues and then walked on dry land with water heaped up beside them, with all of their wives and children and all their possessions and all the gold of Egypt, just a little time later, they all make a golden calf and worship it. Jesus walked on water towards his terrified disciples in a storm and calms it by saying, peace, be still. And these men hear a report. He's risen, just as he said, just as he said, and they think it's idle talk. It's magic fairy tales, and it's absolutely devoid of truth. Nothing worthwhile to hear in this. And God illustrates for us in Scripture the hardness of the human heart over and over again, so that if you are a believer and you do believe Scripture and you do believe in Jesus, that is the greatest miracle there is. That's the greatest thing that could ever happen. People, people ask me all the time, do you believe we live in the age of miracles? Yeah, you're looking at one. In fact, I'm a Christian. Is a miracle. Because I know how hard my heart was. And if God hadn't opened it, if he hadn't softened it, if you're a believer, does God still do miracles? Yes, he does. He changes human hearts. He does what no earthly power can do. If we're ever tempted to take ourselves too seriously, just remember what we are. Remember what we would be without the grace of God. We're very bad without the powerful, effectual grace of God in our lives. We profess to be wise, but are fools. We, we say we can see, but we're blind, says the word of God. Even when we're given every reason to believe, we refuse to do so because we still want to sin. Notice what happens in the next historical narrative. Look at verse 12. I love this. This is high drama. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So think of this scene. Why would Peter rise up and run to the tomb? We're not told exactly why he did this. Why is he spoken of by name and singled out here? Well, what was the last thing that happened with Peter that we saw in Luke's gospel? The last time that we see Peter in the gospel of Luke, Luke twenty-two sixty, Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And in God's providence, as Jesus is being led away from that trial to another one, their eyes lock. And Jesus looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. That's the last time we saw him. Now this is the first time we see him again in Luke. What's he doing? He's tearing off out towards the tomb running towards the tomb. And we know from John's gospel, who else ran towards the tomb? John. John ran too. We know John was a little faster than Peter. John beats him there. Even though Peter stoops down, he sees the linen cloths that Jesus was wrapped in. He sees them lying there on the, in the tomb by themselves 
Unlike the women, Peter doesn't remember the word of Jesus that he would rise from the dead. He just departs the scene wondering, wow, what happened? He doesn't know what happened. But John does, doesn't he? When John goes in the tomb in the Gospel of John, he sees the empty tomb and he believes. After Jesus restores Peter, as recorded at the end of John's Gospel, remember, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He asks him that three times because he denied him three times. After he restores Peter, the same man who was once so cowardly, Peter, the man who denied three times, he even knew who Jesus was. One day he would face a scourging, a scourging, one of the most brutal forms of punishment you could ever get. And he stands there in that council in Acts chapter five, the same guy that, that ran away and hid, the same guy that denied Jesus three times. And he says to this council in Acts five twenty nine, we ought to obey God rather than men. They told them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. He says, no. We ought to obey God rather than men. And Peter and John are then beaten. They're scourged by that council in Acts chapter 5. And their response to being beaten for Christ in Acts 5.41, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Peter, who had three times denied Jesus to save himself from scourging, when he receives the scourging, he departs rejoicing he'd been accounted worthy to get one. Is God able to change people? God change you? Can God change me? Can he make us even better than we are now as believers? Could we be radically different? Radically more courageous? Radically more godly a year from now? Three years from now? Of course. That's, that's God's specialty. Changing people. Peter, who had denied him, Peter, who had denied him, becomes a lion, bold as a lion. That's one of the things that God does. He takes cowards and makes them fearless. He's able to deliver the slaves of sin into liberty. He's able to make the arrogant humble. He's able to make the self-sufficient Christ-sufficient. He's able to take even the worst of sinners and the most destroyed lives and forgive, justify, adopt them, and restore them. A demon-possessed prostitute was one of his most loyal followers. He's able to take the spiritually indifferent and make them into devout followers and disciples. Jesus was scorned by the ones he came to save, we sing in that hymn. Peter scorned Jesus by denying him. But look at what God was able to do with him once he was restored and strengthened and made useful by the powerful work of God in his life. Christians are the only people on earth who have a certain hope for their eternal future. There are struggles with sadness, there are struggles with sin, with doubt, with unbelief, with confusion, with depression, with loneliness, with our besetting vices. But I want to encourage you all who really know Christ, 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Why did Peter not fall away entirely? After he betrayed Jesus and denied that he even knew who he was, why did he not just say, I blew it too much, there's no way I could ever be useful to God? Because he'd been born of God. Even Peter's colossal fall and his restoration was part of the plan to make that cowardly man into a man of God. He remembered the humiliation of that sin and it fueled a new fire to be godly. Luke twenty-two thirty-one, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He wants to shake you violently. 
And I love that passage because Jesus doesn't say, but I told Satan not to. No, he's going to get you, Peter. He's going to shake you really hard. But I have prayed for you so that your faith will not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I'm going to use that failure in your life to give you a strong resolve. And then I want you to use it to strengthen your brethren. Why does our faith not fail when it's tried, when it's tested in fire? Because Jesus prayed for us too. He prayed for those that would believe in him through the apostles' words. He intercedes for us. We continue to believe in him even when the bottom falls out of our lives, not because of anything that originates in us, but rather solely because of his great love with which he loved us before time began. When the holy man Job, poor Job, when Job was in the throes of agony and has been ruthlessly torn to pieces by his friends, at the point in his life where he felt the most alone, the most abandoned, the most misunderstood, and was in the most physical and emotional pain and torment that he would ever have experienced in life, Job uttered these glorious words in Job 19. And he said these things to his three friends. Because his three friends keep asking him what? What did you do? Look at you. Your wife's left you? All ten of your kids were killed in a day? All your wealth is gone? You're covered with boils from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? If we saw that, wouldn't we think, good grief, what did that person do to anger God? We know he didn't do anything. And Job keeps telling him, I, I can't think of anything. But they're saying, no, 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 you're hiding something, Job. It's got to be something. You must have done something. And he finally says to them, how long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with your words? Have pity on me. Have pity on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. Isn't it ironic? They were written in a book. We have them. But then he says to his friends, for I know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. He wants to die. He wants to go on to glory. He wants to finally be resurrected and be with Jesus and have an end to all the pain. Job knows he's going to die. All believers in Jesus, we all know we're going to die. And our great hope is that although our Redeemer died, he lives. He rose again. He's conquered death. When John sees Jesus at the, book of Reve- at the beginning of the book of Revelation, it says in Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And Paul said, the apostle said, that the resurrection of Jesus is the key to the whole Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, without his triumph over death, without his destruction of death and his own resurrection from it, we have no hope. We would all be still in our sins if he didn't come back to life. 
Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, If Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead don't rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. You realize our expectations for the next life. That's when the glory starts. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, that's by Adam, by man also came the resurrection of, of life, from the dead, that's Christ. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion, Muhammad, founder of Islam, Siddhartha Gautama, the founder of Buddhism, every Hindu guru that ever has lived, is alive now, will one day die. Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of the Christian science cult, who ironically thought death was an illusion, is dead. They're all dead, all in their graves. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the greatest, most fully attested historical event in all of ancient history. We too, like Job, can know that our Redeemer lives and that we too, after we die, will be resurrected and we will behold our Redeemer with our very own recreated eyes with perfect 2020 vision one day. Death is a defeated foe and Jesus, by his resurrection from it, has abolished death. How our hearts yearn within us for that great and glorious day. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want to close just by reading a passage and then I'll pray. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. A glorious block of text, and we'll close with it. Second Peter, or excuse me, Second Timothy chapter one, verses eight through twelve. Second Timothy chapter one, verse eight. Paul in his final letter that he wrote, he said, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me as prisoner. But join with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher." For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and God, what a blessed expectation. Of all the places we could have been born and lived and died, we are so thankful. You put a Bible in front of us, you brought people into our lives that prayed for us, that told us about Jesus, that took us to church. What a glorious and wonderful thing it is to know our Redeemer is alive, never to die again, 
that he has destroyed our greatest enemy, and that is death. And when he appears at the end of all things, we will be raised up in glory and thus made fully blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. May that be the anchor of our souls. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.